Y'all go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. All right, before we, before we jump in, let's, uh, let's review Luke. Uh, who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Luke. All right, so who is Luke? Yeah. I see it. That's good. Yeah. Don't fight over it. He's a yeah, physician, story. He's a ministry companion of Paul. Um, so who, who's he writing the gospel to? Yeah, the office. And who else? Gentiles. Yeah, Gentiles. So uh, who's Theophilus? We don't know. We don't know for sure. That's right. What do we know? That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. Uh, likely a high-ranking official at some, uh, in some kind of way because Luke refers to him as, as most excellent. So what's the purpose of the gospel? Why did he write it? That's right. You have a record of Jesus' ministry. But why else? Look at verse 4 in Luke chapter 1. That's right. That's right. So Theophilus would know the certainty of the things that he was being taught. The things that he was being taught were, were accurate and true. So that's why, that's why it was written. So that's good. Good. Any questions? Comments? Criticisms? Don't criticize me before I start. Uh, wait, till, wait till it's over with. So um, the text this week is, uh, is it's pretty, um, it's, it's, it's really good. Um, it's a, it's, uh, it's almost a parallel to the Great Commission. And we'll see that today. But, uh, and y'all know when it comes to the Great Commission, Buffy and I hammer it, hammer it so much uh, uh, and, and, and how important it is for us to be obedient uh, to the Great Commission. Obedient as individuals, but also obedient as a body. And so why do you think we, we hammer the Great Commission so much? Why is it so important that we be obedient to it? Yeah. Jesus hammered it. That's right. That's right. So it was, number one, it was the only marching order that he left us with, right? The only marching order he left the church with. Um, but re- number two, because we understand and we want you to understand that the Great Commission is why you're saved. It's why all of us are saved. If you're a true, repentant, born-again believer, you're saved because of the Great Commission. Now, don't misunderstand me. You're not saved by the Great Commission, but you're saved because of the Great Commission. See the difference? See, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, but, but, but your faith came by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, right? And so how will they hear? Unless they're sent. Yeah, unless they're sent. So how, and uh, and uh, that's right. So that's, that's good. That's good stuff. Um, five times. In the first five books of the New Testament, the, Jesus gave a great commission. Five different times, five different places. But nobody, nowhere, nowhere was it as detailed as Matthew 28, right? And that's, the, that's the most common place that we know, Matthew 28. He says, go make disciples of all nations. And the obedience, the disciples' obedience to that command um, is why we sit here 2,000 years later as people of God. That's why we're saved. That's why we're gathered here today. And so we're, not, we're saved not by the Great Commission, 
but we're saying because of the Great Commission and those that he gave it to initially, and then they're on and on and on and on for, for 2,000 years, we're saying because of their obedience to the Great Commission. So before we got to that point, um, there was that Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Before we got to that point, there was, there was preparation, right? He prepared his disciples uh, for that. So uh, before he left them, before he, was ascended, before he ascended back to heaven, he prepared them and he built them for the task that he gave them in the Great Commission. And so that's what I want us to talk about today. That's how I want to approach um, this morning. It's, it's, it's a process, we'll see in the text, a process of preparing a disciple of Christ for the ministry of Christ, right? So, so who's a disciple of Christ? Who are disciples of Christ? We are. We are, that's right, all of us, all believers. Yeah, all believers. So if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 9, let's stand and read the text. We'll start in verse 1. Verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and take your leave from there. And as far as those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And departing, they began going about, going about among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for, for, for this day. I thank you for for the ability to stand up here and to proclaim just as you gave the uh, disciples the command to do in our text this morning. I thank you for the ability to stand and can proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. Lord, I thank you for, for everyone who is here this morning. I pray for illumination. I pray for, for minds and hearts and ears and eyes to be open this morning to the truth of your word. Lord, whether you, whether you call someone to salvation this morning or, or you take believers that are amongst us and you grow them spiritually, Lord, I just want to see your will done amongst us this morning. Lord, we love you. We give you all honor, all praise, and all glory. It's in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So when Jesus started and began his earthly ministry, he began to build his kingdom. That's what he went about doing, was building his kingdom, right? So I said this before. Um, I think when I preached Luke 6, when he called the 12, uh, he could have chosen a number of different ways to, to build his kingdom. He could have, you know, he's God in the flesh, so he could have called down a legion of angels. He could have, he could have taken and, and, and wrote something in the clouds, in the sky, uh, and 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 said who he was, but what he chose to do, his method that he used was to pour his life into men, right? He chose 12 knuckleheads and he trained them. That's what he did. And, and the method by which he trained them, the strategy that he used is the formula that we, as the modern church, have completely destroyed. We really have. See, he taught them information, but then he modeled it in front of them and then he sent them out, Right? But when they returned, he was still there. He was still there with them to correct them, 
to reteach them, to, to continue training them, and to, and to pick them up where they had fallen and failed as he supervised the process. So in a nutshell, right here in this text, he, it's the process of building a disciple, and, and, and we should follow it um, as we build disciples. And here's, here, um, put that up the next slide, Matthew. This is a condensed summary of the, of the strategy Jesus used. Now, each one of these points would take two years to preach, but uh, he, what he did was he, you know, after he selected his men, he modeled the method um, as he taught his disciples. So he modeled how to do it in front of them, and then he allowed them to assist him in the process, and then he watched and assisted them as they went out and began doing it on their own, and then he left. He ascended to heaven. That's where Matthew 28 comes in, the Great Commission. He left them to do what he had trained them to do. Right? That's the process. And where we're at this morning in this process is we're on W, watching and assisting as they began. So he was still walking with them. He was correcting them. He was guiding them. So that's where we're at. So he's, he's uh, what they've been doing up to this point, they've just been watching him. Right? They've just been watching how he ministers. They've been listening to the lessons that he's taught. But here he's finally calling them to act rather than to watch. So so uh, he's healed hundreds in front of them, he's, uh, and, and, and they've seen so much. They've observed his message, they've seen miracles, they've seen healings, uh, and they've watched his methods. Now he sends them out to experience it for themselves, right? He, he's equipped them, he's coached them, and now he's sending them out. But he's sending them out with very specific instructions, as we read in the text. So as we break apart the text this morning, we're, we're going to glaze over just as quick, you know, quickly. We're not going to be able to... We don't have time to spend as much time as I'd like on, on each of these points, but we're going to just glaze over this process and we're going to look at it from two different angles. It's the responsibility of the disciple maker and the responsibilities of the disciple. We see in the text that there's responsibilities for both. And so that's our first point. Our first point, responsibilities of the disciple maker. He says, uh, and he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So in the process of building disciples who build disciples, who build disciples, who build disciples, that's exactly what Jesus has been doing, but there, there's a responsibility of the teacher, there's a responsibility of the student. Both have skin in the game, right? They have responsibility in this whole process. So let's look at the responsibility of the teacher, the disciple maker. Uh, your first point your first sub-point under, under, under the responsibilities, uh, the first responsibility of a disciple-maker is to extract his people from the world. He extracts his people from the world. All right, uh, the first part of verse 1 says, and he called the 12 together. And he called the 12 together. Now, in context of this, obviously, Jesus had just returned from, from healing the woman uh, with, the, with the issue of blood, and he raised uh, uh, Jairus' uh, daughter from the dead. And those are things that he only shared with three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. But, but now he's calling them all together. He's gathering them all together. So at this point, I would say that it's safe to say that uh, they all 12 weren't spending every waking minute together. You know, they still got jobs. They still got families at this point in the ministry, in Jesus' ministry. So he's calling them all together to send them on this mission. So... Let's look at the concept of calling and what it means. And again, in the context of our text, calling, he's gathering them together. He's already called them to ministry, but here he's just gathering them together. But, 
But in life application, there's, a, there's some points here that I want us to see when a disciple is called. All right. So when a disciple is called, he's selected. All right. So Jesus's selection we saw in Luke six, his original selection of the twelve, and he selected them for a job, and that job was for them, the twelve of them, to 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 become just like him, to become just like Christ in their, in in their appearance and in, in how they walked, why they talked, how they ministered, everything about them was to become just like Jesus, and so he selected them. Then he began teaching, he began training them, and preparing them. So. We, could, we, we understand that his, his, his concern, his main concern wasn't about preaching. His main concern wasn't programs. His main, you know, his main concern was, was men to reach the masses. That's how he wanted to reach the masses was through the man. And so when we realize that, when we realize that men were his method, we'll start to understand that preaching was not his main focus, right? Preaching wasn't his focus. It was people. It wasn't institutions. It was individuals, right? So... If we look at Scripture chronologically in order, uh, we'll see that before he ever preached his first sermon, he had selected men. Before he preached his first sermon publicly, he had selected people to follow him. And these men, these twelve that we're talking about, they weren't they weren't impressive. Right? They wouldn't impress any of, any of us here. They they weren't key people. They were common. They had common backgrounds. They were some of them were social outcasts. But these are the men that Jesus spent his time with, that he called, that he selected, that he chose and spent his time with. And these were the men that he initiated the kingdom of God on earth with. Right? He laid the foundation of the New Testament church with these 12 men. And so his ministry, Jesus' ministry reached thousands, millions of people, right? Touched thousands. But he only trained 12. He only trained 12. So he gave his life on the cross for millions of people, but he gave three and a half years in public ministry to 12 men, right? Men were his work. They were his method. They were, they were how he went about things. He, like I said, he saw the masses through the man. He built the man to impact the masses. So he didn't, he didn't select 12 and then send them out. When he first selected them, he didn't send them then. He spent time training and building them. He empowered them or equipped them and sent them out. But the first thing he did was call them, right? He, he, um, the first thing he did was a call them. He extracted them from the world. So that process of selection is true for us as disciple makers. That's, that should be the same process for every disciple maker. A disciple maker has to be selective, very selective in who he spends his time with, right? We've got to be just like Jesus, and we've got to follow his lead and follow his example if we're going to be fruitful in what he's called us to do and the mission that he's gave us. You know, he, like I said, he, he, uh, he gave his life for millions, but he only gave his life to 12. That makes sense? Y'all following me? You wait? All right, so what you've got to do is you've got to look for, for people who exude certain qualities. All right? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying when I say that, you know, when I say being selective. It's not, it, that, that doesn't mean evangelism. Evangelism is not selective, right? There's no qualifications on or restrictions on who we evangelize. You follow the lead of the Holy Spirit and, and, and you share the gospel with everybody you come in contact with. But when it comes to building disciples who build disciples who build disciples, you've got to be selective in who you spend your time with and who you pour yourself into because you've only got so much time. Right, you've only got so much time. You can't spend a major portion of your time with people who are uncommitted or unfaithful. 
right? Jesus did. He didn't spend the majority of his time. Listen to this. When you, when you do the math, he, did three, he spent three and a half years in public ministry. When you calculate that out, that's over 30, just over 30,000 hours of time that he spent in public ministry. 25,000 of those 30,000 hours were spent with these 12 men. 25,000 of 30,000 hours he spent with 12 people. You see how important that is? So what he did was he recruited hundreds. He developed 70, but he only chose 12. And he graduated 11, but he really only focused on three. And we saw that in the last text last week where he took, uh, only took Peter, James, and John with him. Those were his, the main guys that he spent the majority of his time with. So we've got to be just as selective when we're building disciples. What's the basis of our selection, though? What, what, are, we, what are the qualities that we're looking for? Um, so there's, 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 there's two different, there's two different ways that we select disciples. First, you select them from, from the harvest field. You extract them from the, uh, from the harvest field. So that's outside the doors of the church. You select and extract from the harvest field. These are lost people. And so you look for people with, with reach potential. And I didn't put this on the slide, so just follow me. Um, you look for people with reach potential. So when you write notes, just R-E-A-C-H, reach. The R is reachable. So you want to look for people who are reachable. You want to look for people who are eager. You want to look for people who are accessible. You want to look for people who crave truth and crave the word of God. And you want to look for people who are humble. All right, when you're out in the harvest field, those are the qualities that you look for in a disciple, right? All right, and so uh, when you extract from the household of faith, when you extract from inside the walls of the church, when you're looking at saved people, these are the qualities that you look for. You look for people with fatso potential, F-A-T-S-O, fatso potential. It's faithful, available, teachable, faithful, available, teachable, faithful, available, teachable, servant-spirited, and obedient. All right? So faithful, available, teachable, servant-spirited, and obedient. And those that are lost, reachable, or reach potential, reachable, eager, accessible, reachable, eager, accessible, crave truth in the Word of God, and humble. Everybody, y'all got that? Everybody got those? Let me say it again. Both of them? Okay, faithful, faithful, available, teachable, servant-spirited, and obedient. All right, so it's important that you look for people with those qualities. Robert Coleman said in the Master Plan of Evangelism, let me read this quote that he, that he, that he, uh, that he wrote. Um, he said, one must decide where he wants his ministry to count. In the momentary applause of popular recognition or in the reproduction of his life in a few chosen individuals who will carry on his work after he's gone. Really, it's a question of which generation we're serving. That's stout right there. So if you're going to continue to live and leave any kind of legacy, you're going to leave a legacy to the disciples that you build. That's how you continue living and your ministry continues living after you're gone, gone. So the first responsibility of a disciple maker is to extract his people from the world. The second, our second point, our his second responsibility of a disciple maker is to equip his people for the mission. All right, he says, 
in the second half of verse one, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. So Jesus gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases. So that word power in the Greek means ability. And the word authority means the right or permission to use the power. So he gave them the ability to cast out demons and to heal sickness, but then he gave them permission to use that power on the mission that he was sending them on. So the lesson that we can learn from that is God will never send us out on a mission, will never ask us to do something that he then doesn't give us the ability to do. Amen. All right. So he sent the 12 to proclaim the gospel and to heal sickness and to cast out demons. And these are things that up to this point, they've only watched him do. They've never done it. They've just watched him do it. But now he's sending them out. He's equipping them or empowering them to do everything that he's, they've seen him do. So he gave them this mission and it was a word and deed mission. It was twofold. It was two parts. So he said, proclaim the gospel, meet the spiritual needs of the people that you encounter, but also meet the physical needs of the people that you encounter by healing them, by uh, casting out demons. So it was word and deed ministry. So uh, he, he said, uh, uh, declaring the kingdom with words and <clears throat> displaying the power of the kingdom with deeds. So that's, that's, that's exactly what we're called to do today. Right. We're not we're not called to do one or the other. It's, it's both. It's word and deed ministry. If you look at Jesus, when he preached, when he preached, he didn't just preach. Right. He, he immediately met the needs of the people that were in front of him. That's when he did most of his miracles when he was preaching. So he didn't send them away when the people came to him asking for healing and asking for for miracles and demons to be cast. He didn't send them away. He didn't say you're somebody else's responsibility. You go back to your church and ask your pastor. Nobody said he met their needs. So by displaying his power with healing, by doing um, by doing those things, it, what he was showing it was was that he was the Messiah and he had the power to reverse the curse. And he gives the disciples that same power and authority on this mission. But look, we've got that same power and authority in ourselves. Right. When we meet the needs of people for the sake of the kingdom, in his name, and only his name, when we feed them, when we clothe them, when we give to them, when we do those things all for the purpose of eventually sharing the gospel with them, we're displaying the kingdom that Jesus brought, brings. That's what we're doing. He, right alongside proclaiming the gospel and meeting the needs of people. So he sent the, these 12 out. He sent them to preach and to heal. That's what the text says. He said he gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases. So he sends them out to preach and to heal. Um, so this message is uh, Jesus's message. It comes with action and demonstration, words and deeds in combination, right? So we've been given the power and authority to do it. But what happens? Honestly, most of the time, we have the power and the authority to do these things, but we fail to tap into that power most of the time. We fail to tap into it. And this is the pattern here. This is the pattern of making, building and making disciples. See, this stuff has to be modeled to your disciples. It has to be modeled just the way he modeled it for the 12, and then he equipped them and empowered them to go out and do it. He spent time doing it in front of them. So it's not enough for me to, if I'm building disciples, it's not enough for me to, 
to uh, to tell um, to uh, to tell a disciple to tell Dan there. Say, for instance, it's not for me enough to tell Dan that it's his responsibility as a disciple and as a Christian to to go out and and share the gospel and meet the needs of people. I mean, yeah, I'm supposed to tell him. I'm supposed to tell him how to do it. I'm supposed to teach him how to share the gospel. But it's not enough that that I do that. I have to display it in front of him. I have to show him how to do it. You know, telling somebody to do something and showing them how it's done are two different things. Completely two different things. So he's got to witness it done. He has to watch it done in front of him. And then he has to be sent to do it while I watch him do it. And then correct any mistakes that he makes before he's sent out, he sent out again. That's, that's what Jesus is doing right here in this text. And like I said, it mirrors the, the Great Commission almost identically. It's almost identical, but there's one big massive difference. Uh, he doesn't ascend to heaven after, after, he, after he gives them the, the commission or the mission. He doesn't ascend to heaven after this. They're not ready to be left on their own. They're not ready for that yet. He's still supervising. He's still correcting the process, right? So the responsibilities of a disciple maker, number one, is to extract his people from the world, to equip his people for the mission, and here's the third one. The responsibility of a disciple maker, a disciple maker must employ his people into the field. Verse 2 says, and he sent them out to proclaim the, proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So after calling them, after spending time training and equipping them, now he sends them out. All right? He sends them, really, he knows they're going to fall. He knows they're going to fail. And he knew he would have to correct or reteach some things. But, but how else do we learn? I mean, what's the, what's the best way to learn? What's, what's the best method of learning? That's right, on-the-job training, right? That's the best way to learn. Experience is the best teacher. See, the classroom can only give you so much. It can only give you so much. It can only prepare you for the assignment. But it will never be enough it will never be enough uh, for us to just hear how to do it, right? You got to get in the game yourself to know how to do it. Yeah. You have to do I mean, 99.9% .9 of the time, really the situations that you prepare for in the classroom never really appear when you're out in the field. Mm -hmm. They never really come up. And that's, that's what Jesus is doing right here. He, he's letting them fail. He's letting them learn by failing so he can pick them up and he can show them where they went wrong. And he can correct their mistakes. Let me give you an example of that. When I was, when I was just out of school, I took a job at, uh, at DirecTV installing satellites. And it was, it was fun. I fell off a ladder once. Um, <clears throat> but after I was hired, we spent three weeks in training. Two of those weeks were classroom, step-by-step -step how to do this kind of stuff. And that last week, we went one-on-one -on -one out into the field with a, with a trainer who taught us, who, we watched him do it for that week and ask questions. But then the next week, we were sent out on our own. First 10 jobs I went on were disasters, absolute disasters. What should have took me 30 minutes to do took me three hours to do because I was completely lost. Most of, Part of that process they had right. You know, when we look at how Jesus built his disciples here, they had that right. They, they taught, taught us in the classroom. Then they took us out and we witnessed, him, witnessed how to do it. But what I learned is, is after this process, every, this was a thing. 
putting in satellites. This was a thing that they go through. Like every person hired fails their first week miserably. And so they could have saved a whole ton of money if they would have added a fourth week. And that fourth week be going back out in the field, but instead of me witnessing the trainer do it, him then watch me do it and correct me as I go. Right? And so that's what Jesus is doing in the text. He's sending them out. He's taught them. They've watched him. Now he's watching them and correcting them before, um, before, uh, before he gives them the mission and, let, and lets, them, lets them go on their own and he, him not be there. Right? So nothing can replace real hands-on experience. Jesus knew it. Um, if you look in Luke 10... And we'll preach this in a few weeks, but when, when he sends, he sends the 12 out here, but in Luke 10, he sends the 70 out and they came back boasting. They were, they came back boasting, uh, that even the demons were under Jesus's authority. And what he did was correct them. He correct them. And in Luke 10, 20, he said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are in the book of life, that your names are recorded in heaven. So as disciple makers, as people who are building disciples, who build disciples, who build disciples, we've got to be able to give loving correction. Got to be able to do it. And as disciples, we have to be able to receive loving correction. Remember, correction is not rejection from a person who loves you. When it comes from a person who loves you, correction is not rejection. So it's the only way we're ever going to be ready. It's the only way we'll ever be ready for the mission. We've got to fall. We've got to be corrected. And the only way to do that is having is, is having experience. Let me tell you this: we were just on this trip in Nicaragua, uh, and this it's, is kind of it's kind of surprised me. Some of you might understand what I'm saying. I mean, on one hand, it surprised me; on the other hand, it makes sense. But um, uh, we're going to give our report on that trip in a couple of weeks. And, and this guy that I'm telling, I'm fixing to tell you about, Doug Doug Landrum. You'll meet him. He'll be here uh, when we give the report. He's the director of Catalyst Missions, which is the is the ministry we went uh, with and traveled with on this trip. And this guy's 32 years old. He's got a PhD. He's a teacher at two different seminaries, and uh, he's bilingual. I mean, he's probably the smartest person besides Buffy I've ever met in my life. Um, and and while we, one night we were hanging out. Uh, yeah, and we were in the hotel room talking and I told him, I expressed to him that I was looking to go back to seminary, to get back enrolled and take classes in seminary. And this was his, this was his reaction. Why? He said, why in the world would you do that? He said, he said, if I had a job opening on my staff and I got two resumes and one guy was just out of seminary with a PhD and the other guy had never been to seminary but I had 10 years experience. He said, I take the guy with experience every time. He said, I take the guy with experience. He said, seminary is great at teaching you certain things, but it doesn't give you the experiences, experience of being in the trenches every day. And that's what Jesus knew. That's why he didn't, he didn't spend time. Te- uh, that's why he didn't just spend the time with these men, just teaching them and training them and modeling to them. But he gave them an opportunity. He gave them a platform. He allowed them to fall and to fail so he could pick them up, so he could correct them, all right? So effective ministry is born out of experiential ministry, really and truly. It's not read about in a book. It's not learned from a book, all right? So those are the responsibilities of a disciple maker. What are they again? Extract, equip, employ. Extract, equip, and employ. 
That's the responsibilities of a disciple maker. Now let's look at the responsibilities of the disciple. All right. Verses three to six says, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So when, uh, when we're going through the process of making and building disciples, the disciple maker has key responsibilities, but so does the disciple who's being trained and built. When we submit ourselves under the guidance and under the authority and teaching of a teacher, of a disciple maker, we've got to be sure of, of certain things about that person. Right? We have to be certain that the person that we're deci- that's discipling us is actually following Christ. We have to know that. Right? Now, new believers aren't going to be able to tell. We're not going to be sure of the doctrinal beliefs of the person uh, right off the bat, but there's... Uh, and the reason is because new believers aren't even sure about their own doctrinal beliefs. But a new believer should be able to tell if the person that's, that, that's going to disciple them is actually following Christ. Mm-hmm. We have to know that much about the person, right? So uh, if you're going to enter into that relationship with somebody, then you've got to know he's following Jesus, right? That's the whole, the, the whole basis of this relationship is, is to be taught is to, or to teach and train a person who will then begin teaching and training. But... A disciple is what? What's the definition of a disciple? Not, he's not only a learner, but he's a follower, mm-hmm. right? So f- first he's a follower of Christ, and then he's a follower of his disciple maker, right? So if the, if the disciple maker is not following Christ, then the disciple shouldn't follow him. I mean, that's just plain and simple. Jesus, or, or Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So here's your first point. Under the responsibilities of a disciple, a disciple should have confidence in his disciple maker. A disciple should have confidence in his disciple maker. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. So if a disciple knows his teacher is closely following Jesus, then he can trust the things that he's being taught and ultimately submit to the authority of the instructions of the teacher. All right, so let's look what Jesus says here. He tells them, um, as he sends them on this mission, he says, don't take anything with you. Don't take anything for this trip. Don't take a staff or a bag or bread or money or even an extra shirt. And the house you come to, stay there for the duration of your stay. So he wants them to learn what? What is he trying to teach them? He wants them to learn how to trust him to be their provider. And that's one of the most important things we can learn. That's one of the most important things we can ever learn, that God will provide for all of our needs. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he said, don't rely on material things. Don't rely on material goods. If you rely first on God, then he's going to provide everything you need. In Matthew 6, 33, he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So why do you think he gave them the instructions to take nothing with them? Well, his instructions are to teach them, to train them, right? Without money, what happens when you don't have money? Without money, you can learn to rely on the Lord to fund what he's called you to do, right? But with money, you would check your own ability. 
you know, you check in and say, do I have the, the funds and the ability to, to go to Nicaragua, to go to Africa? Just like Buffy was talking about, uh, going to, don't, don't let money stop you. Trust the Lord. If you have a desire to go, if you agree with him at distance, he'll get you there. But you have to trust. You have to have confidence in him. Right? Amen. So, um, um, he told, he, he, so, so with money, you check your own ability and resources. With a bag, if you take a bag with you, uh, you depend on the resources that you brought with you. And so for this mission, he says you can't even take a walking stick for protection. So they're to really, totally, completely, 100% rely on the Lord. Now, there's a point of order here. In Mark, uh, Mark's account of this, in Mark 6, 8, he sa- it says and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. So Mark says they're allowed to take a staff, and uh, Luke says they're not allowed to take a staff. These are, this, is, this is one of those places that, that looks like the Gospels contradict each other, but they, but they really don't. Uh, most commentators agree on this point. They say uh, that Jesus was making the point, go as you are. Right, so it would have been known that if they're going on a long journey, they're they're going to take a staff. It's just going to happen. What he's saying is, don't overload with extra stuff. Don't take two staffs. Don't take another one with you. He said, no extra provisions are needed. Don't take extra stuff. So, when you look at our life, when we go about with the Lord, we know the Lord's called us to do. How many times do we refuse to do something because we don't think we're equipped for it? We don't think, um, we, don't, we don't go on a mission or we don't go to Africa because we don't think we have everything we need, right? Instead of fully relying on the Lord and, uh, and, and just fully focusing on what, the, what God has done and what he's provided and, and will do with us and through us, we put the resource or the pressure on ourselves. And, and, and what we've done, um, what we do when we do that. Um, is, is we put the requirement to do what God's called us to do on something other than him. Like I said, he's not going to ever call us to do something that he doesn't empower us and equip us to do. But when we refuse to do something that we know he's called us to do, then we put the requirements on us to do it instead of fully relying on him. Right? Jesus says travel light. That means to live in complete dependence on him. Right? Fully committed to the mission and not tied to worldly concerns, right? So a disciple's first responsibility is to have confidence in his disciple maker. A disciple should also be content with God's plan. That's the second one, be content with God's plan. He said, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave. Stay there until you leave the city. So he says, be content with with where you're staying. Whatever house you're invited into, stay there. Whoever says stay here, that's where you stay. All right. So what was going on at that time uh, in, in the context of the culture is there were traveling teachers, false teachers traveling around. What they do is they come into a city and they, they'd be welcomed into a house and they would stay there as long as they could, as long as they could milk the person who lived in that house. They would milk, milk as much money out of them as possible. And then they'd go to the next family in the same town. And then they'd go to the next one, into the next one, into the next one. And they keep moving and collecting as much money as possible from the people. And Jesus says, go to one place. Just go to one place and stay there the entire time that you're there. He said, you start there, you leave from there. And, uh, and it's all about being content, right? He says, uh, there's nothing, uh, 
it's about doing nothing to better your situation. Just just go and stay where you are. Paul said, uh, he said, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having an abundance and suffering need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. And then 1 Timothy, he said in 1 Timothy 6, 8, he says, if we have food and covering, be content. So that's really, that's the true mark a real true mark of a disciple. He demonstrates contentment. Contentment, when, when you talk about contentment, it, it doesn't have to have something better all the time, right? Contentment lets the Lord meet our needs. Contentment is being satisfied with what you have, what he's given you. And knowing that if there's something that you need more, he'll give it to you, right? I can talk an hour about that. I really can, because I promise you, God calls us into all the world to make disciples, right? He says, go out into all the world, make disciples of all nations. He sends us out, and what do I do? I go spend a week in Nicaragua, and I gripe and moan about everything. I don't have hot water, so I gripe and moan about it. I had to take cold showers for a week. I had to gripe and moan because we had to teach in a room with, with no air conditioning, with heat. You know, it was, it was hot. I gripe and moan because we had to have a translator to even communicate to the people. Right? And, and, and I just griped and moaned, griped and moaned, griped and moaned the whole time. And God had sent me on an assignment to do something that, that I know, because of what happened, had lasting effects on that country. It did. He used me in the salvation of two people that week. And then he, he literally worked life through what we went and taught. We had one pastor come to us and said, I have robbed my people. You have changed my entire ministry. I mean, this is going to have, what we went and taught will have lasting effects. And when I just went, griped and moaned and griped and moaned and complained, I wasn't content for just being sent and being on assignment for him. I had to have things perfect. I needed hot water. Or, yeah, I needed hot water to take a shower. I needed bottled water to, to, to brush my teeth, and they were charging these little bitty bottles they were charging a dollar for at times. So I griped and moaned about that. And I'm telling you, that's a selfish, self-centered, pathetic attitude. It is, seriously. And, and we all have to deal with some semblance of suffering in our life. We do. If you're going to serve the Lord, you're going to suffer for the Lord. You are. But we've got to find that place of contentment in God's plan for our lives. We do. We've got to learn to be there and be in that place to be content and satisfied. So a disciple should have confidence in his disciple-maker. Right? A disciple should be content with God's plan. And a disciple should also continue the mission regardless of the opposition. Continue the mission regardless of the opposition. Verse 5, he says, And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. We don't realize what this is saying. I didn't. When I first read it initially, look, this is, this, is, this is huge. This is one of these things that we miss. We just glaze over if you don't dig a little deeper. What Jesus is telling them to do is a whole lot bigger than shaking the dust off your feet and moving to the next town. I mean, that's what it says, but it's bigger than that. He said, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So that was an old Jewish custom. When, when, when a Jew would travel into a Gentile area, and he would come back across the border into Israel. 
he would shake all the dirt, all the Gentile dirt off his clothes. He would shake it out of his sandals, off his robe, off his shirt that he was wearing. That was a symbol of, 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 of contempt, right? It, the Jew wasn't going to bring pagan dirt back into the Holy Land. So this was a gesture of rejection to the Gentiles. And it was a rejection of the most offensive kind. It was a symbol of scorn is what it was. So he says, if you go into a house, that's what Jesus says. He sends them out and he said, if you go into a house in Galilee and they don't, they, they don't hear your message and they don't receive it and you go into the town and they don't receive you, treat them the same way you treat a pagan. Treat them the same way you would treat a Gentile place. Shake the dust off your feet as a symbol that they're not the people of God because they've rejected you. Treat them as unclean. That's what he said. And, and these, are, these are the Jewish people that he's talking about. These are God's chosen people, right? He says, even in a Jewish place, in a Jewish house, in a Jewish town, a Jewish village, if it refuses the gospel, then you treat them like a pagan. That doesn't mean that, 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 that you don't preach and call for repentance and faith. It doesn't mean that you don't plead, that you don't beg. But what it does mean is when rejection is absolutely evident, there's nothing more to say at all. Shake the dust off. Let them know that they're under judgment and leave and leave. He said, he said there's so much time. There's so many people. He said, you got to move on. You got to move on. So we come across people like that. We all have people in our lives like that. We share with, we share with, we share. When is it time to move on? God says when, when, when that happens, when they continue to reject and continue to reject, he said, move on, check the dust off, but talk to them about judgment. Tell them where they stand. Don't just walk away. Tell them where they stand. Acts 18, 6. When they resisted and blasphemed, Paul shook his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. He was talking to Jewish people there. He said, I'm clean. I'm clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what he did, wasn't it? That's exactly. He shook the dust off in the face of the Jews. He told them their blood was on their own head. He said, you're going to be condemned by God. You're going to bear the full responsibility of it. I'm clean because I've discharged my debt to you. So listen, when, 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 when people reject the gospel, that's one thing. They're going to reject the gospel. That's, that, that'll happen. But rejection today doesn't mean rejection tomorrow. Just because they reject it doesn't mean we don't continue sowing and sharing and watering the seed that we've sowed. But, but, but when the times come to move on, when people, is when people reject and mock the gospel. Right? When they don't want any part of it, when they don't part, want any part of it, Jesus says, don't cast your pearl before swine. Leave them to the Lord. Pray for them. Tell them they're under judgment and then move on to the next person. All right? So we've seen the responsibility of a disciple is to have confidence in his disciple maker, be content with God's plan, Continue the mission regardless of the opposition. And here's the last thing. Finally, a disciple should cooperate with the commands of Jesus. Verse 6 says, Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So at this point, Jesus, he's called them, right? He's called them, he's equipped them, he's employed them, and now he's sending them into the field with these specific instructions. So they, they have a mission, and their job is to be obedient and cooperate with the assignment. And that's exactly what they do. The text says they departed, they began preaching and healing everywhere. So this is, this is a two-part mission. We talked about it earlier. It's a word and deed mission. So, so preaching the gospel is the first part. He says, 
And that's what we're, we're to say, right? That's, and there's, there's a message to give, and healing everywhere is, is what they're to do. So, so this mission that he sends them on, it's, it's something to say and it's something to do. Something to say, something to do. So the first part is preaching the gospel. He says they were to go, uh, make, go and make an announcement, all right? So they weren't going and putting on some Billy Graham crusade, right? They weren't, they weren't doing that. He didn't tell them to go hold seminars and conferences. He gave them the mission, uh, or he didn't give them the mission to go and, 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 and convince the world how wrong they were. He didn't say go and uh, uh, have this apologetics conference. He says, go and announce, go and proclaim. He doesn't say, go win arguments over people. Don't get people to, don't go and try to get people to dress like you and try to get people to talk like you. He says, go proclaim a message. Go proclaim a message. Go preach the gospel, shout the good news. And the good news is that God, God is drawn near, right? That's the same message John preached, same message he preached. It was, the, it was the message that Jesus preached. It was the message that the disciples on this mission here and this mission after preached and it's the same message we're called to proclaim today so the mission included something to say preaching the gospel and it included something to do which was healing everywhere all right so this this healing ministry uh it, it was what this was it was it, it it served as their credentials right they went out and he gave them credentials they didn't have degrees from an accredited southern baptist seminary right their degrees were from the Lord. They attended the school of Jesus, right? So these credentials they have here, this was power and authority over demons. It was, it was to heal sickness. These were significant credentials. I mean, he could have given them power and authority to do anything he wanted to give them the power and authority to do. He could have given them the ability to leap over tall buildings, be faster than the speeding bullet. He could have gave them all that, but, but what he gave them, look, look at it, he gave them the ability to heal, and he told them to preach the gospel. So the credentials he gave them were people-oriented. They were people-oriented. They, they, they were credentials that met the physical needs and the spiritual needs of people. So apply it to yourself. Make it personal. What are your credentials? What are your credentials? What kind of degree do you, what kind of degree do you have? I'm not saying what kind of degree do you have from an institution. What kind of degree you have, do you have hanging on your wall? I don't, and really, I don't mean to imply that, 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 you, that you have to have this ability to, 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 to heal sickness and to cast out demons. What I'm asking you is, do you know what the Lord's gifted you with? Do you know what he's given you? He's given you spiritual gifts if you're a believer. He's given every believer spiritual gifts. He's given you talents and he's given you resources. Just like he gave the disciples and he empowered the disciples and he equipped the disciples Everything he's given you is meant to be people-oriented, right? Not you-centered, right? It's not me-centered. It's about other people. He doesn't give you spiritual gifts for you just to use whenever you want. He gives you spiritual gifts to minister to the body of Christ. He gives you talents, not for you to get a leg up in life with, not to just entertain people. He gives you talents to get into the lives as a way to get into the lives of people. And he's giving you resources, right, monetarily and, other, and in other ways. He's giving you resources, not just to big, build fancy lives for yourself. It's not why he gives it to you. He gives you these resources for the purpose of meeting the needs of people and going into the world and proclaiming the gospel. So what are you doing with them? What are you doing with the credentials that he's given you? 
See, really, as a Christian, when you become a believer, your life's over. It's over with. You don't exist for yourself anymore. Jimmy doesn't exist for Jimmy and his family anymore. Buffy doesn't exist for Buffy and his family. Billy doesn't exist for Billy and his family. Coach doesn't exist for Coach and his family. We exist now for the sake of somebody else. The moment we become believers, our purpose is changed from our very own to, to his. So, so how are you using what he's given you to accomplish the mission that he's put you on? How do you stack up? In the long run, it doesn't matter what degrees are hanging on your wall. What matters is the heavenly credentials that you have. That's what matters. And it matters about the people's, who, who the people are that you, whose lives you get into, who's, who's been touched by you meeting their needs spiritually and physically. See, when we sit at the judgment seat of Christ, he, he's not going to say what, what he's going to ask. is he, what, he, what he says, he, he'll say, what did you do with what I gave you? With everything I gave you, what did you do with it? What did you do with my son? Where are all your disciples? That's what he's going to ask you. So, as we wrap this up, let me just say, if you're a believer, if you're a true, repentant, born-again believer, guess what? You, you've been called to missions. You have. One thing I hear from people a lot is, man, I'm glad you go on these trips. I'm glad you started going. God's called you to missions. He ain't called me to missions, but I'm glad he's called you. Uh-uh, that's not true. If you've been saved, it's not for the purpose of you getting to heaven when you die. It's not for the sole purpose of changing your address. It's for the purpose of being on mission with your entire life. A believer has been called by Jesus. He's been extracted from the world. And he's been equipped with spiritual gifts talents and resources and he's been given these things and been given authority to use them to make disciples of all nations so how do you do that Matthew 28 says by baptizing them that's how you do it you do it by baptizing that that comes after they believe so that that's where evangelism is encompassed so after you've preached the gospel and evangelized people and they've come to Christ then you baptize them that's not where it ends it's not over with then he says and then teach them to obey all things that I've commanded See, in our text today, the disciples were sent out as a means of training, right? And they returned to Jesus. But we're actually in a better place than they were. We may not have Jesus physically here teaching us and training us and then coming back and correcting us when we come back to him. But the last verse of Matthew 28 says, And lo, I am with you always, to the end of the earth, to the end of time. So when we go out on mission, he's with us. He's right there with us. The entire time. So how are you doing with the mission he's given you? Because he's given us all the same mission. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them all things that I've commanded. That's the mission of every born again believer. How do you stack up? You have a responsibility. First as a disciple. And then as a disciple maker. Let's pray. Father. God, I thank you for your perfect plan. Before the foundation of the world, Lord, you, you had it all laid out. You saw it. You knew what was, you knew, number one, that Jesus had to die. Before you even created the first person, you knew your, 
the lamb would the lamb would be slain. But then you knew what was going to have to happen in order to gather people, to gather the body of Christ. You had a plan. And the only way to execute that plan was you you had to come. You had to take on flesh. You had to live the perfect sinless life. You had to be killed and, and hung on a cross and your life taken to take on the sins of the world on our behalf. But during the time that led up to that, you gave us the perfect plan and the marching orders and, and showed, displayed how to gather your bride. God, I thank you for it. And Lord, I pray today that we get serious about it. We get on our heart what you have on your heart, and that's people. We go and we reach people. We meet their needs physically and spiritually by following your plan. Lord, if it's your plan and it's your method, then, then, then who are we to say, I got a better one? Or this is the way you do it. It's, it's better than what Jesus did. No, I want to follow in your footsteps, Lord. I want to do exactly what you did. So God, I pray that you give everybody here today a passion passion for your strategy. Lord, we love you. And Lord, I pray right now, if there's any amongst us that, 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 are, that are apart from you, that don't know your son, Jesus, Lord, I pray that you, you, you open their eyes and their ears to the message of the gospel right now. Lord, I pray that if it's in your will to save somebody today, Lord, I, I, I pray that we get to see it, we get to witness it. And I ask you these things now in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So, I'm wrapping this up. You know, um, it's crazy. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was teaching and training these guys, when he was teaching and training these disciples, and he gives them this mission to go and preach the gospel, this message that they preached is the same message we preach today. Right? Nothing's changed. It doesn't need to change. All it needs is for, 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 for somebody to believe it, to know it, and to share it. That's what it needs. When we do that, when we go and share it, then, then the Holy Spirit is going to draw people to himself. All we have to do is proclaim it. All right? So for me, it really it's amazing when we understand God's plan. I mean, look at what he did. He took the most important message in the history of the world, and he trusted it to somebody like me. Man, he put it in the hands of people like us. You know yourself better than I know yourself. Do you think you ought to be trusted with something that valuable? No, God does. He thinks we should be trusted with it. He gives us the gospel, and then he gives us the command to take it to the world. And, and he does that knowing that nobody in the history of the world will ever be saved apart from it. That's the message that has to be proclaimed in order for people to be saved. He said the, the power to salvation is in the gospel. So it's a message to be proclaimed. So, so how, how are we doing when it comes to, to sharing that message? Who do you know in your life that needs to hear that message? If you're saved, as Romans 1, say, Romans 1 says, we're not ashamed of the gospel. You know it has power. You know there, and there's a desire within every believer to share it with those that we know that don't know its power. But also, on the other hand of that, if, you, if, you, if you're not living a right, in a right relationship with God, you know it. You know if you're not saved. You do. And hopefully, 
after today you understand your purpose and your mission that he's put you on. Why did God create us? He, got, he created us to bring himself glory, right? First and foremost and ultimately we were created to bring God glory. And, and if you're not his child, where do you stand? You stand guilty in front of him. You're guilty before him. Living the life, the, the life and the curse of your nature, of your physical nature that you were born with. And that's the life of a sinner, a condemned sinner. If you're apart from him, you stand condemned and guilty in front of him. Listen, apart from the shed blood of Jesus and the resurrection, eternity in hell is where, where, where you're headed. I'm just going to be honest with you. What were Jesus' first words in public ministry? Anybody know? First words out of his mouth after he left the temptation for 40 days and being tempted by Satan. The first words out of his mouth were what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That was the first words out of his mouth. It's the same message that he's saying this morning to us. If you're living separated from him, repent and believe the message of the gospel. Turn from the life you've been living. Turn from your sin and believe that Jesus is exactly who God said he was. He's, he's, he's his son. He was sent to live amongst us. And he lived a perfect, sinless life for the purpose of being hung on a tree. And, and, and on that tree, as he hung, the complete and total wrath of God was poured out on him. So the one who knew no sin became sin, and he took the very punishment that we deserve for that. And, and, and now he offers us the reward that he deserves. So he took my place, he took your place, and the place of everyone who would ever believe in him. So don't continue. If, you, if you're living apart from him, don't continue to reject him. Because you know what happens when you reject God? When you reject God in this life, what, what, what's going to happen? He's going to give you exactly what you want in eternity. If you reject him here, he's going to give you exactly what you want in eternity. If you live apart from him in this life, you're going to live separated from him in all of eternity. He'll give you everything that you want. So don't think you got tomorrow or tonight or next week or next month. Today's the day of salvation. And if you're living apart from him, run to the cross. Run to the cross. So, so we, we're going to have this time of invitation. And I'll just say, if you've got any questions, if you know God's calling you to salvation, come. We can have a conversation about it. We can talk about it. If you've been visiting with us and you feel like God's calling you to membership, to be a part of the Crossway family, uh, I'd ask you to, to, to just respond at this time. Uh, if you want to talk about baptism, have a conversation about believers' baptism, then, then, then let's talk about that or... If you just want to come to the altar and pray, you want somebody to pray with you, we can do that. But I just say, as the, as the Holy Spirit leads you, as the Holy Spirit guides you now, respond in faith.